Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, tech buzzers, if you guys have been paying attention, you can probably guess the two recent pieces of news. One about an acquisition and the other about a funding event both here in the U.S., by the way, that we here at TechBuzz and also the whole Seneca Podcast Network got way, way, way excited about this month. Ray is talking about the acquisition of Gimlet Media, a podcasting network by the newly IPO'd music streaming service Spotify for $200 million and the $100 million raised by podcasting platform Himalaya, which was just announced last week. What does this have to do with China Tech, you ask? Yeah, it's actually a bit of a departure from our usual subject matter, because this barely made a splash in Chinese media. And in the past, we have always just focused on Chinese headline news. But we just couldn't help ourselves, because a podcast episode on podcasts is, first of all, so meta. And second of all, it was a big deal in English language news. And surprisingly, quite a few articles did mention China as a leader in this space. Specifically, the phrase, the podcasting industry in China is 23 times larger than in the U.S., was cited by a large media outlet. And since I've never seen anything like that cited in Chinese, I had to find the source. Turns out pretty much everyone is referencing an article from Marketplace called FOMO in China is a $7 billion industry. This article says that the Chinese government estimated the quote-unquote pay-for-knowledge economy, or fei, to be about $7.3 billion in 2017, with the bulk of it coming from paid podcasts. In the same article, the reporter notes that the 2017 U.S. podcasting market had advertising revenues of only $314 million. And since most podcasts monetize through advertising here, well, we can safely assume that's the market size, in terms of monetization anyway. So if you take out your calculator, that's a difference of, wait for it, 23 times. But could it be that simple? Do Chinese people just love paying for podcasts? Like, a lot more than Americans? Yingying, why are we doing an English podcast and not a Chinese one? We could start one today! We just can't use the name TechBuzz, though, because Kuji Wong Wong would be really, really weird. Well, the answer is that it's obviously not that simple. Chinese people are notoriously frugal. And tech buzzers, you already know that aside from gaming and live streaming, it's just not that easy to get netizens to pay for content, as evidenced by our recent episode 33 on Tencent Music. So why are they paying? And what exactly are they paying for? All questions I'm dying to talk about. But before we go into the show today, we just want to say that we really love doing this episode because it allowed us to understand where the podcasting industry came from and also formulate some of our own opinions about where it's going. A side note here, 
we are actually completely accidental podcasters. So we knew absolutely nothing coming in. In fact, the only reason we decided to even do a podcast was because we wanted to provide accurate, well-researched, and in-depth stories precisely like the one you are about to hear. Stories that go beyond the easiest, most digestible headline. Stories that are as accurate and as complete as we can make them, while being, we hope, somewhat entertaining to listen to. In our naivete, we thought that a 20 to 30 minute podcast would be easier than writing 4 to 6,000 words. And boy, have we since then been proven totally wrong. I think the effort has been worth it though. And I know we do it all the time, but we just want to thank you guys today again for listening. Thanks guys. The president's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after a whole night thinking, I say I still want to do it. Hi, everyone. We are Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily. Powered by the Seneca Podcast Network, we are a weekly podcast focused on giving you a peek into what's buzzing within the tech community in China. We uncover and contextualize unique insights, perspectives, and takeaways on headline tech news that don't always make it into English language coverage, so you can be smarter about the world of China tech. Tech Buzz China is a part of PanDaily.com, an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. I'm one of your two co-hosts. Rayma and I'm your other co-host Yingying Liu. We'd like to acknowledge our partners Deal Street Asia and Sub China, creator of the Seneca Podcast Network. In addition to Tech Buzz, you can also find Seneca, which covers current affairs, Nui Voices on women, the business-oriented China Econ Talk, and the Taishan Seneca Business Brief from China's leading business magazine. Check those out, guys. As always, if you enjoyed listening to our podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever other platform you use. And because our last episode was so delayed, our Hongbao offer still stands. Send us a screenshot of your review, and we'll be happy to send you a small holiday red packet in WeChat. Just email us at rui at pandaily dot com for further instructions. Unless you are an early adopter. You probably only started listening to podcasts just a few years ago, or even more recently than that, and not way back in 2004 when the term was officially coined by a journalist. I'll be honest and say that I myself started consuming podcasts in earnest maybe just three years ago. Same here. Today, it's almost hard to believe that podcasts were not always a mainstay channel of content consumption. Anyways, one of the first clues that the China podcasting market is not the same as that in the U.S. is the fact that if you searched for "boke," which is the official Chinese translation for podcast, you'd get articles like this one, PSCR transcript, titled "Chinese podcasters have to wait another ten years for a viable business model." This was published in December two thousand eighteen. Not quite the seven billion dollar blue ocean that we were looking for, right? In fact, if you read this long and really extensive article in detail, the description of the industry is quite dreary, 
and it's echoed, by the way, in a talk given also in 2018 by podcaster Cheng Yanliang as part of cross-border VC GGV Capital's GG Voices. Cheng references the story of Alex Bloomberg's founding of Gimlet, yes, the one that was just bought by Spotify, as his inspiration, and also what every podcaster in China should pay attention to. And what inspired him to start on the podcasting path in 2017? Before hearing Alex's startup podcast, Cheng said that he, like many other intellectuals in China, had deemed podcasts to be low cost, of low value, and only fit for killing time. Now, these are not the words you would expect to hear describing an industry that's reached seven billion dollars that same year, right? Or I guess it's possible if Chung is an outlier and not representative of the average Chinese listener. That's entirely possible, given that he was listening to English podcasts. But even if that was Chung's personal opinion, that doesn't explain why the article we cited earlier was so bearish on Chinese podcasts. So who's wrong here? The Chinese podcaster bears or Western media bulls? The answer lies in how you define the seven billion dollar revenue market that keeps on getting thrown around. You see, even in that original marketplace article, the writer does call it what it is actually referred to in Chinese, which is "pay for knowledge" or "zhishi fu fei." If you think that means it sounds more like an education program than a podcast, at least in the sense that we are a podcast, then you are right. Let us quote you from a Chinese article on People's Daily that talks about how the seven billion dollar—yes, that number again—pay for knowledge market is poised to burst. It's the state-owned newspaper, so it can be critical of non-state-owned businesses. But check out the example they gave of a woman who wasn't sure that her pay-for-knowledge product wasn't a scam. I paid for a weight loss package last month," she said. "The teacher seems very good, but I'm not sure about the efficacy." That's right. That's the kind of product that's being included in this pay for knowledge market, which, by the way, the article notes has reached 188 million users at the end of 2017, with triple the revenues of the year before. So yeah, it's experiencing explosive growth. Are these really podcasts, or are these? And we are going back to that marketplace article again, best described as something else. Let's see. The article says that the main podcast consumer they interviewed, a guy named Chen Jun, of the dozen or so podcasts he paid for, they were mostly educational lectures on Chinese history, health, the economy, finance, and learning methods. Sure, these were audio products, often delivered through what's called a podcasting platform. Like Himalaya, the main investor in Himalaya. By the way, we know it's a little bit confusing for those of you who do speak Chinese because Himalaya is literally the Chinese pronunciation of Himalaya. But the point is, what he's paying for are actually, ding ding ding, educational lectures, not the entertainment content that I associate with podcasts, and not what I'm gonna bet most of you have on your phones either. Yes, educational lectures. Emphasis on lectures, not just content that's educational in nature, which we'd like to think tech buzz is, but structured formally in a way so as to actually be well instructive. You don't get what we mean. Well, here's an example of what Chen Jun paid for. 
how to get healthy returns from the stock market. Does that sound like a Netflix or Spotify for audio content to you? Well, maybe if you only watch documentaries and Planet Earth on your Netflix. But for me, Chen Jun's source of selections sound more like what you find on a Coursera, edX, or some other continuing education platform. And guess how big that market is? In 2016, self-paced e-learning content revenue in the U.S. was $12 billion. In China, consumers only purchased about $1 billion of self-paced e-learning that same year. Even if we include all revenues, including what government and corporations spend on training, that's just five billion dollars total. It's still less than half of what the U.S. spent. And please don't think we're exaggerating the educational lecture aspect of the market in China. The same marketplace article notes that Shimalaya signed with a professor by the name of Timothy Taylor, who blogs on economics, and agreed to develop a 90-episode podcast on the subject based on. You guessed it, one of his books. First of all, kudos for really respecting IP, since Simalaya could have probably ripped off his content and gotten away with it, but obviously chose not to. Although in this case, they probably wanted his official endorsement because they branded it Stanford Classical Economics, since the guy had taught at Stanford before. Stanford, I'm guessing, was not informed nor shares in these revenues. But lest you think this is a one-off thing, it's not. It's huge. We want to actually take some time here and really highlight in detail why this phenomenon exists, because I haven't seen it mentioned in the same breath as the China podcast market, which by now I think you guys know is really more like the China educational lecture market. Once again, the original marketplace article actually does a great job of getting a little into why this exists. Again, a reminder that the article is titled "FOMO in China is a seven billion dollar industry." This isn't just any fear of missing out, though. It's a specific type of FOMO related to knowledge, or 知识焦虑 aka knowledge anxiety.、Um, yeah, this is a real thing that people in China talk about all the time. So much so that it's listed as a mental disorder in Baidu's wiki. For the record. I've studied psychology extensively, and no, there is no such equivalent in the U.S. Although maybe I think you can just use the general term anxiety disorder to refer to it. The wiki entry says that the disorder is a result of the huge influx of information in modern society, and the inability of certain individuals to well basically keep up with this type of exponential growth, leading to anxiety and nervousness. If serious, the description goes on to say, sufferers may experience physical symptoms like nausea and vomiting, and females may even have early menopause. Wow, that's serious stuff. Funnily enough, under the treatment section, the entry recommends understanding the source of one's stress and to not seek perfectionism, and especially not to inundate oneself with too much information or knowledge. But that's exactly the opposite route of what most people are choosing to take, because most of them are trying to cram in ever more information, not less. 
A state-owned newspaper surveyed 2,000 people who were mostly 40 years and younger in 2018 and found that 73% felt that they suffered from knowledge anxiety. 61% of them felt that it was because their job required a lot of knowledge that they were unprepared for. And 86% said that they studied in their spare time. But the solution seems clear. Study more, study smarter, but definitely don't stop studying. Or that's what the folks surveyed said they planned to do. The government seems undecided on whether or not that's a good idea. Certainly, there is no wholesale endorsement. A critical opinion piece republished by People's Daily said that all these pay-for-knowledge schemes were effectively selling intellectual fast food. According to the writer, the audience only receives fragmented information instead of systematic thinking. It even creates the illusion that by subscribing to a few such products, one is actually reading a book when in fact one is not doing much self-improvement at all and it maybe doesn't even lower their anxiety. The real value of paying for this knowledge, he claims, is seriously out of proportion to its popularity. But why is this so popular? Well, there are a few reasons. The first is the expert celebrity worship mentality and the concept that information is money. The best example of this, by the way, is the app Duodal, or I Get, which is often characterized in the same breath as Himalaya because of its focus on audio content, but as you'll see, really isn't the same. I personally listen to this app almost every day. Both Duodal and Himalaya by the way, are categorized under books in iTunes. Unlike Simalaya, which covers a broad range of content, Dao is solely focused on professional knowledge. Founded by Luo Zhenyu, a famous Chinese internet personality known for his witticisms and wisdom, Dao is basically his attempt at monetizing his fan base, and he's been very successful. He began his logic talk show, Luoji Siwei, and launched it online in 2012, where it first began as a weekly, nearly hour-long video show, but eventually became a much shorter, audio-only weekday format. You can catch a lot of the episodes, by the way, on YouTube, where he still has over a quarter of a million subscribers. What does he talk about? There's some evergreen topics like how to learn, how to read, how to manage your time, or how to socialize effectively. And sometimes it's in response to topics of the day, like IP protection, the Argentinian economy, 3D printing, etc. Basically, business, economics, and self-improvement. After being wildly successful with this format, he launched the Duodal app in 2016. And yes, it literally means to get, or I guess maybe to receive. It's categorized into academies. These are thematic groups like business, science, families, society, etc. He's invited hundreds of industry experts to give classes in the form of audio lectures. Each of these courses, by the way, range in cost from five to $30. Now, this is where you get the story of the wildly popular Peking University economics professor, Xue Zhaofeng, who left his teaching post last year after grossing almost $8 million on the Dedao platform for his courses, of which it's estimated that he receives half. This guy is at nearly 380,000 students now, and each of them is paying about $30. 
So yeah, that's a lot of revenue. But again, this is not as much a podcast as it is designed to be an actual course. So I really don't think this should be counted as Chinese podcasting revenue. However, it is most definitely pay for knowledge revenue. I'm not sure you can get the same amount of traction with a university professor's content here in the West, where formalized learning is not as culturally significant, and this concept of knowledge anxiety doesn't seem to be as widespread as it is in China. Although I do think some investors have some version of it. <laughs> But aside from educational lectures, a huge use case for audio content is the audiobook category. And guess what? You know what Shimalaya's tagline is when you download it in the App Store? Shimalaya FM 听书社区 That's right. They brand themselves as a social community for listening to books, a radio station for 有声小说 which literally translates to audible novels. They're even categorized in the App Store under the category books. So I think to really compare apples to apples, we need to tack onto the twelve billion dollar e-learning market the revenue for audiobooks, which, by the way, was a very respectable two billion dollars in the U.S. in 2016. For China, that number was three hundred million dollars. And guess who had seventy percent market share and saw it as a great revenue opportunity early on? Sima Laya. They started going into the business in 2016, and what a good thing that is! Because audiobooks made up over a quarter of all audio content in China in 2016. We are taking that figure, by the way, from an article from Sixth Tone, a subsidiary of a state-owned paper. It's provocatively titled "China's Struggling Podcast Industry." See, told you we're not the only ones who thought that's the case. Let's take a look at a top ten content creator in Himalaya. It's this guy called Yu Sheng the Zijin, who has almost six point five million fans. His content is, you guessed it, audiobooks. A few of them are free, but most are behind a paywall. Himalaya allows for transactions through Apple Pay, by the way, so you're free to test this out yourself. But the current rate is six Himalaya points for ninety nine cents, and it costs just point one five points, or just two and a half cents, per ten minute episode of his books. One of his newest horror books is eight hundred thirty five episodes, which would cost you about twenty dollars all in. But then he also has books that run over two thousand five hundred episodes. Which yeah would be about sixty dollars to finish the whole thing. The horror one, by the way, has over three hundred thirty million plays in total. So even at two and a half cents per play, that's eight point three million dollars in gross revenues. And after Apple's cut and Similia's fifty-fifty split, that still comes out to a few million per book, right? That's not bad. That's actually really fantastic. But wait a moment here. Do you really think that Chinese people are paying sixty U.S. dollars for an audiobook? Does that make any sense whatsoever? No, of course not. Most likely, they did what I did, which is sign up for the three-dollar monthly VIP membership, which allows me unlimited access to, as far as I can tell, all the content on the platform. Now, the math is not looking so great, is it? But what about tipping, which is this thing that's been super hyped as an amazing revenue stream? Again, we see that in his entire career, 
This guy has had about 25,000 patrons who gave him something. That's only 0.4% of his total followers. There is a leaderboard, and we can see that the top lifetime donor gave him about $3,000. And the top donor for this week is at about $50. The drop-off from there is quick, though. And as of today, which is Thursday, only 10 people gave him more than $2. Again, that's gross before any splits. I'm just not seeing that many dollar signs here from tipping. With this guy, he actually has said on the record that he is netting, after all fees, about 150 k a month, which does make him on track for nearly $2 million a year. That's really, really, really good. But he's a top 10 talent on the platform, hardly representative of the population. Most creators, just like in the US, just like us, are probably just barely eking out a living. And we have data to support that. According to Simalaya's founders, the platform brought in revenues of just about $100 million in 2017 and expected that to roughly triple in 2018. For a company that has a rake of 50%, I don't know about you, but I was not super impressed. Nonetheless, they're rumored to be going for an IPO soon. And based on their daily active users of 23 million and monthly of 75, have a very good shot. Although it's important to note that I did not find any news on their profitability. Okay, so what gets mixed up as podcasts in China is actually a ton of audiobook content, which by the way, makes a lot of sense because as scripted content that's already been scrutinized for risk, it's way more resistant to censorship versus some off-the-cuff interview format. But wait, it's actually even more broad than just educational lectures and audiobooks. Let's take a deeper look. We are going to quote you an industry analytics report from the second half of 2018. And the first thing we want to point out is the title. It's actually called the which translates literally to Audible Audio Data Report. Okay, it sounds a little bit normal in Chinese. This market, by the way, which is composed of the same companies we keep on referring to, led by Sima Laya, but also less popular companies like Qingting, or Dragonfly, Dedao, which we've talked about, and Lichi, or Lichi, grew over 70% last year in terms of users to 170 million, and it's fairly evenly distributed between the genders it's at about 52% female. However, over 80% are under the age of 35, and about half are in first or second tier cities. There are lots of these platforms, but we're only going to focus on Himalaya, the clear leader. We've already talked about it a lot already, but let's make it official. Himalaya, which has nearly half a billion registered users, was founded in 2012 and officially went live in March of 2013. Just over one year later, it had already amassed 50 million registered users, way faster than the founders expected. And its initial investors were SIG, KPCB, and Sierra Ventures here in the Valley. So what happens when you log onto Simulaya for the first time? Well, in the app, you're asked to select your content preferences, and then the app begins recommending you content. To experiment, we selected every option. So from music, to comedy, to sleep stories, to business, to history. If you look at the rankings on Shimalaya, 
and this is more obvious on their website, it shows the top 10 free and paid shows. You can see that the free ones are dominated by scripted comedy routines, or xiangsheng, and the paid ones are indeed history, poetry, or lifestyle related. The top one currently is a 160-episode show on ancient Chinese poets and their poems, designed for the person who's interested in enhancing their cultural appreciation, or perhaps for an ambitious child who wants to delve real deep into this required curriculum. It's available for 199 RMB, or about $30, and you too can sound startlingly intelligent at your future dinner parties. It's true. In China, to this day, being able to spell ancient poems is a sign of learnedness and immediately elevates your social status. This seems to be important enough, at least, to 35 million users. That's the number who have paid for products on Shimalaya. That's about 7% of their total registered users, but closer to half of their monthly active. But not all the content is paid, obviously. Most of it is free, and it's different from what you would expect. First of all, there's a whole music category that is effectively independent DJs playing their favorite songs, overlaid with relaxing words, and also a lot of people uploading original songs. In this respect, it's kind of a mix of easy listening radio, Spotify, and SoundCloud. There's also plenty of sleep-inducing music, kind of like Calm, maybe, for those of you who use that app. Although I see some of these on Apple Podcasts as well. I guess insomnia is just a worldwide crisis. And then there are categories that can only simply be called audio content with Chinese characteristics. Of course, there is Communist Party study material, including one just for the Youth League, as well as Chinese opera, but there's also a fair amount of English learning content as well. And very creepily, one of the first pieces of content that we got recommended on my phone was this one. You'll have to click through on our transcript to hear it for yourself because I don't want to get into any IP violations here. But suffice it to say, it's an 18-second clip of the very incredibly handsome British actor Tom Hiddleston saying something, well, very incredibly creepy. It's probably ripped off of one of his movies, but this is clip 59 of a channel called or How to Recite Poetry with Tom Hiddleston. There are 180,000 plays on this particular clip, which again, I'll have to emphasize, is only 18 seconds long, and I doubt is authorized by Tom. It sounds like it's probably just ripped off of one of his movies. This entire channel, which is an English learning channel, has accumulated 4 million plays across dozens of clips and has 170,000 fans. Do you guys think this counts as a podcast? Because I certainly don't. But it does not count audio content, which is the categorization that is used in China. And as we explained, it's actually considered educational content. Imagine lots of Chinese listeners playing this clip and repeating after Tom in order to get that impeccable British accent. You really have to hear the clip, by the way, to believe it. The main point, though, is now you see just how difficult it is to compare across the two markets and slap on a headline that says China's market is X times bigger, when the content that's being created and listened to is so incredibly different. All right, I think we've beat this horse to death already. So let's give it a proper send-off. 
What have we learned today, Ray? Very simply, we learned that what is sometimes referred to as the quote-unquote podcasting industry in China is really the amalgamation of educational lectures, audiobooks, music maybe, and even short unauthorized Tom Hiddleston audio clips. That's right. So it's not accurate to compare to the 300-ish million podcasting revenues in the U.S., which are more for shows just like this one, with the $7 billion pay-for-knowledge audio category. That category, by the way, includes even more uniquely Chinese businesses that we simply don't have time to get into today. We also learned that the popularity of educational lectures is spurred on by knowledge anxiety, which is basically when people feel overwhelmed by information and unable to get at or make sense of the knowledge they need to do their jobs, so they will pay for an expert to teach them. They'll also pay for audiobooks. Together, these two categories make up a huge portion of the audible audio content in China. It's not super clear that this trend will go on indefinitely, by the way. Yes, a big problem is that some unscrupulous merchants oversell the value of their content and leave disappointed users who feel like they were conned. But increasingly, there seems to be the consensus that it's not easy to retain all this new knowledge that you're paying for. And so there's all this anxiety that's actually generated by this effort to treat your knowledge anxiety. And people are just not happy. Ray, you know what this whole episode is? It's a really roundabout way of answering the question, why aren't the two of you doing a Chinese podcast? Isn't the market blowing up over there? Well, as you can see, we aren't an audiobook nor some prepackaged course, so maybe we'd get some fans, but it would be difficult to convince Simalaya to pay us in advance or Chinese listeners to pay us $30. Maybe if we did an English learning channel instead. That being said, we do think the educational and knowledge-based nature of podcasts globally will become more salient in the future. And maybe the content in the West will start having a mix that looks more like what it's like in China right now. Anecdotally, by the way, we were lucky enough to meet several TechBuzz superfans in person, from fund managers to executives of Fortune 500 companies. And we were told last week that our content was affecting the way you guys are thinking about your investment or operational strategy with respect to China. So I think we could kind of qualify as educational content. What do you think, guys? As a final note, you're extremely welcome to click on the link in our transcript to become our first tipper on the Simalaya platform. Yes, our lovely team updates this feed every week. Or if you're one of the few dozen who do listen to us on Simalaya, give us some lingqian xizuan. All right, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, episodes will now be available every Friday instead of on Wednesdays. We really enjoyed putting this together, and we're always open to any comments or suggestions. We mean it. You can find us on Twitter at the Pandaily at TechBuzzChina, and my personal Twitter account is spelled G-I-N-Y-G-I-N-Y. And my Twitter is spelled R-U-I-M-A. TechBuzzChina by Pandaily is powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. Pandaily.com is an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Shaw Wan and Kaiser Guo. Our intern is Wang Wenglu.